Hello and welcome to this edition of the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I'm Sophie Fisher. There hasn't been a time in living memory where there's been a greater focus on safety and health. COVID-19 has made us examine in forensic detail what we do in our everyday lives, how we live, where we shop, who we meet. And since most people spend a significant portion of their waking hours at work, the issue of safety and health related to work has become crucial to understanding both how the virus is spread and how we stop it. So it's entirely appropriate that this year the ILO is marking World Day for Safety and Health at Work, which is on the 28th of April, with a report on how to anticipate, prepare for and respond to safety and health crises like COVID-19. Now we at the ILO are all still working from home because of COVID-19, but via the miracle of the internet, we are continuing to work. And I'm delighted this morning to be joined by Manal Aziz, Senior Specialist on Occupational Safety and Health at the ILO, and one of the coordinators of our report on safety and health at work this year. Manal, hi, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sophie. Thanks so much for having us. How are you? How is working at home for you? Uh, that's a good question. It's been a struggle, I must say. Um, but I guess like everyone else, uh, I have to manage three very young kids, full-time job from home. And, you know, we don't have family or anyone around for help. So it's been quite a struggle like everyone else. Yeah. I, I think for all the same here, I only have one teenager, but it's still a struggle. I, I think for all of us at the ILO, we have had... Um, uh, personal experience of the problems of, of remote working. Um, we've been in touch with the uh, the problems of um, the world's workers, perhaps in a way that in some other issues we aren't, at least not so directly. Yeah. So tell me, you've been the coordinator of this report. What do you think we've learned about occupational safety and health from COVID? Well, I mean, first of all, that occupational safety and health is really important and that uh, we can't take things for granted. So we've learned on so many levels in our lives um, as people who work and as people that are part of a community. But in terms of occupational safety and health, we've realized that if we haven't invested earlier in the different infrastructures and the different elements that we need when we face a crisis, it's not during the crisis that you're going to start setting them up. So it's a little bit too late if we don't plan ahead. That's what we've learned. And so we've seen that countries that had planned ahead for global health crisis, such as this one, were able to act really quickly and were able to integrate protection of workers in their broader crisis management um, approach. What's, what, what sort of things do they have in place? I mean, naming no names particularly, but what sort of measures or systems did they have in place that really helped, do you think? So you really have to start off you know, at the national level by having regulations, by having that regulatory framework that people can be guided by. So what am I supposed to do as an employer? What's, gonna, what's supposed to happen in this particular economic activity or sector? Uh, do I have the right policy and strategy um, uh, in a certain sector to prevent accidents and diseases and to prevent, for example, exposure and contagion in the case of this communicable disease. 
So starting off with regulation uh, and countries who had regulation that were adapted to uh, biological hazards, um, you know, were able to react immediately in giving guidance. And so that would be the second step, um, making sure you've developed guidance. We were a bit lucky because there were some of these different um, viruses uh, that didn't take a pandemic scope but did affect regions and countries in a, in a devastating way. And so there were these emergency guidance already in place for some countries that were most affected and others not. You're talking about things like SARS and MERS and stuff like that. Exactly, exactly. I mean, this is similar and not similar in many ways. Um, but, you know, this people who already had governments, who already had, you know, national regulations in place on those issues, on, you know, what measures to be taken, what personal protective equipment needs to be done, what, what distancing needs to take place, and all these thoughts that, you know, they've already gone through, they've invested in research in these, was important. So regulation was important, research, you know, and knowledge that was ready to go when you are faced with a new virus was important and how to manage your workplace in that sense. So having that management system for occupational safety and health already set up for other risks and exposures at work helps. And you can take that system and apply it to a communicable disease such as um, COVID. So those were sort of the countries that reacted quickly and they had institutions. So they had tripartite committees made of workers, employers, governments discussing already other issues. If that committee is already set up, it can quickly discuss a new issue and collaborate easier uh, in an easier way and then even reach out to other you know, departments and governments and, and players, key stakeholders to discuss and be ready you know, as, a, as a unified group of world of work actors to be ready to discuss the national level such a crisis. So being strong uh, as that OSH system that we're trying to advocate for now helped these countries have already, you know, have a name, have visibility, uh, have guidance, have research in place and have the tools to apply all of this to a new threat and a new crisis such as COVID. That's interesting. So th th these countries, I mean, I think a lot of the countries we're talking about here are in Asia because that's where, where SARS kicked off. They, as a result of that, they set up tripartite systems, which they could then reactivate for COVID? Yes. I mean, some of them did. Some of them already had it, regardless of the, the crisis. And it's not just, I mean, there are other communicable diseases that, like Ebola that happened in Africa. Uh, there are others that we've learned from that, ha you know, have a, a, an immediate threat and an immediate threat to healthcare workers also that needed to be protected. So, which brings me, you know, to where the threat lies, you know, was the strongest. And it was really among these healthcare workers that have to deal uh, immediately um, with cases that we know little about scientifically in the beginning. And they were not protected. They didn't have the right tools. So countries that already had, you know, a preventive a system in place, you know, administrative also system in place where, you know, the shifts were working right, um, the physical barriers that they could just bring in and set up uh, were there, the equipment was there. The countries, obviously, that are a bit more developed economically and have, you know, realized the importance of setting up your health services right, um, was able to protect their health workers and provide a safer environment for, for patients. So that was sort of, you know, we can see that. And we've seen that even developing countries um, suffer from
from that. So, you know, there's this tendency that we don't invest in public services. We assume it's just going to happen. And we assume that people who work in this field, you know, have a vocation to do so and they should just do it and hardly be paid for it. So it made, I think, you know, another thing we've sort of learned is it made governments realize that this is where, you know, investment needs to happen. Because if we're not alive and if we're all sick, we can't enjoy everything else a government provides to its citizens. And if we don't collaborate internationally, something like this, so communicable across boundaries, you know, can take a toll on everyone and on economy and, and on, on the future of everyone's lives. Yeah, um, I mean, it's often been said about COVID, nobody is safe until everybody is safe. And I think we can all appreciate that in principle, that's the correct, but strengthening systems, particularly in developing countries, basically means more money, more resources. And these are the countries that even if they've had the experience of SARS and Ebola, you know, a lot of them don't have the resources. So who's going to pay for this? Well, it takes on different levels, different measures. And of course, it's uh, gradual. So we don't expect, you know, a magic wand where people without the economic resources or even sometimes the technical know-how. I mean, for a quick example, you know, if you don't have uh, trained physicians uh, to recognize different diseases or potential exposures at work, they're not going to be able to di diagnose an occupational disease. So if you don't even have that training available, the right uh, technical um, knowledge, you're also unable to manage situations related to health uh, as such. So yes, there is a need for financial investments, uh, but it's gradual. And the need for financial investment comes when you set a policy that actually calls for it. Because the budget is there in most countries, it's where it goes. And it's trying to make sure you advocate that this is a priority and you don't wait for a crisis to happen or for a catastrophe or for an accident or a fire, such as the one in Beirut, for example, to happen. And then you look back and think, oh, I needed a preventative system in place before that. So accidents are happening, global crises are happening, national crises are happening um, all the time. So investing is a choice because the budget sometimes exists. It just goes somewhere else. So you need to inject the money where you need it the most to ensure a safety net for your population. And, and so we work like at the ILO, our constituents in different countries, we work gradually. We don't expect, you know, a magic wand. And this, and here we come, you know, to our international normative system that helps governments update their policies and national laws gradually and start implementing gradually and feeding the necessary budget and, and intellectual know-how during the process. So it doesn't happen overnight, but there needs to be a will. Uh, and some things don't need too much resources. And, and they're just about being aware of little changes you can do, raising awareness. Really? Yes, because sometimes you, you have the resources, you give people personal protective equipment, they don't wear them because they're not trained on why they're nece it's necessary for them to wear them. And they're not motivated and there aren't enough rewards or enough consequences that are explained, etc., or regular training that happens in the right language at the right time, etc. So there are so many levels of making this work. So it's not just about injecting money into it or not, but about building that environment and culture where safety and health are important and people prioritize investing in them. I mean, you talk to a, a lot of um, governments, workers and employers in the ILO's member states. Do you get the impression that 
the prioritization of this has changed because in some ways osh in the past has, has been a bit of a poor relation you know it's always tomorrow's investment has that changed now do you think absolutely i can confirm that the atmosphere is very different today governments got scared they were facing something they couldn't control we've seen from the literature that workplaces are we're one of the biggest hubs and cluster of transmission because you know people continued to go to work uh, uh, people weren't protected and it was a hub for transmission even though you know we don't have the proper statistics to globally announce different issues yet and they will come as we as we look into them in more detail but we've seen national statistics in different countries that really shows a high percentage that happened in the workplace so this scared governments and they needed to have you know the tracing cap- capacity um the infrastructure capacity management system at the workplace so they wanted to quickly learn we see it in global discussions such as the question of whether occupational safety and health should be a fundamental principle right at work and we've seen a resistance to that discussion earlier and recently this year in our you know in the ILO governing body we saw a tremendous amount of support coming into this needs to be a right at work this is you know this is not a question anymore we need to be investing in the safety and health of workers because the problem is so when a crisis like this happens you tend to neglect the other chronic diseases that were already going on and so you know governments were faced with decisions and trade-offs where people had to die so others can survive and and i think the effect of that will go a long way if we keep the momentum because we know you know it's easy to you know to go back to our old habits and think you know if we don't have an immediate threat everything's fine but unfortunately unfortunately i think governments have learned and you know the tripartite constituencies uh social partners have learned you know uh with difficulty and um you know through this terrible catastrophe that we're all living that uh safety and health of workers is important if not the, the least for the essential you know for the essential work that needed to happen uh during the crisis delivery of services um be it you know the healthcare sector be it the paramedics um you know p- people uh pr- providing basic food and uh, um for people to survive in their homes during lockdown you know we realize what's essential we realize you know how this needs to happen and they need to be protected to actually deliver basic survival needs for the rest of the community so basically we've all been taking it for granted haven't we i mean i noticed that in what one of the slightly scary statistics in your report is up to 20 or 30% of cases uh in some countries can be attributed to workplace exposure so clearly uh, you know getting a handle on this standards in the workplace are absolutely crucial right absolutely absolutely and um and that's why so much work has been going on um to really encourage uh, decisions at the workplace you know to keep people from exposure to the extent possible through different means and um regulations you know and this is where we're seeing a lot of teleworking where possible uh, and other means so do, do you think that the workplace as we used to know it has gone I and mean, when we ultimately you know finally stop working from our kitchen tables or wherever um the workplace we go back to will not be the same or will it, it, it will we just ease back into that i wouldn't be able to predict but there are several things to consider here so 
if we're talking about office work, that's one issue. If we're talking about agriculture, if we're talking about, I mean, we were already in a state where everything was moving forward differently. This pandemic fast-tracked a lot of the, you know, the, the, the changes that we were already facing anyway. Um, and it sort of, you know, made it a, a, a normalized uh, the way the work was being conducted, especially for those who can work uh, through from offices. Yes, I think there will be a huge change in going back to a full-time 100% office job when your work can be conducted from home. Mm. But looking at research, this is being, you know, this we're facing different opinions around this and different situations of people. You know, some people are begging to go back to a place where they can consider a workplace that's not, you know, confounded with other responsibilities they may have at home for elderly, for children um, and for the actual home management that they need to be doing. So this multitasking is not uh, healthy and it's not long term. At the same time, the flexibility to be available to use your personal time differently and choose when your personal time happens is interesting and is helpful. And so I think it's a halfway between, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested in office work because there the trade-off between the financial component of safety and the health of the workers is quite direct because, for example, it's things like the size of the office space that you rent for, say, 10 workers. Is it smaller? Do you go down the route of hot desking, which has been um, a, 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 a growing trend and, and very popular among some companies and, and government offices because you save money? Um things like uh, sealed windows with no natural ventilation. Do you think people are going to be, be rethinking these? I mean, for example, will we, see, will we see hot desking? Will we see sealed windows in five years from now? I think it really depends on the nature of work and the nature and size of the company and the activity that people do and the, the general um, uh, demographic of the workers that work in this activity. I think we've been trying out uh, a lot of different workspace um, situations. Some have worked in some contexts, some have not. So I don't think we would be able to generalize a new uh, workspace uh, for all kinds of work. Um, some, and I think we're still trying these um, different situations out, but I doubt that you know, we would be able to um, adopt uh, such new workspaces um, for all different activities at all. I mean, now there are two things we need to be considering spacing out, if anything. Um, sharing is no longer really an option. So I think there is serious rethinking about how much sharing and open space we were having um, just before the pandemic and how much now we're talking about distancing, isolating, ventilating. Um, so it, it really it really depends. I think we need to strike a balance um, between understanding, you know, communicable diseases uh, at work and outside and uh, establishing a system. So, you know, 
um, airports haven't been the same since bombings have happened. Yeah. And I don't think workplaces will be the same after such a communicable disease has hit us hard and killed, you know, a large number of, of the population in this century. So I think, you know, many elements need to go into the thinking once we decide on what kind of workspace fits best for our demographic of workers, for the type of work that's being done and for the flexibility that's expected from now on. I think a high level of flexibility needs to go into how we propose, you know, jobs in, in, the, in the present and, and the near future. Yeah, I think one of the, also one of the other scary things that has come out through COVID is the new OSH or Occupational Safety and Health risks that ha- have emerged through these, these working systems. I mean, the chemical ones, partly related to cleaning, I guess, um, ergonomic people not working in, in special designed offices and of course you've already touched on, on the psychosocial which I think for many people is some uh, one of the most worrying um, things to emerge of all. Uh, I cannot stress enough Sophie how important that is just by taking my daughter to school this morning um, I'm going to just mention something because it it really bothered me this morning. Um, a, a mother walked up to me from a country, not from Switzerland, um, and they're here as expats with her husband. She doesn't work. She just told me that she's now been forced back to move back to her country because she's in a situation of domestic violence and cannot get any help. And uh, by being locked down um, with her partner, um, this has exacerbated the situation for the past year and she's found no resources for help. Um, it's And this is just one example from this morning and we're in one of the most developed countries in the world and nobody can help. Um, you know, the changes that have happened that people that used to travel, you know, they used to be absent 50, 60% of the time. They never had to face, you know, the different psychosocial environment that you now face from working from home. Um, the just speaking to psychotherapists and psychologists in, around the world, the, the level of mental illness, I think this is the current pandemic above all. Um, and I don't know how we can best now protect people, protect people from further damage, because as we know, you know, once you have, you know, mental breakdowns, it's very difficult to go backwards. And and that's also been sort of the dilemma for countries to close down, open down, go back. You know, people are dying from COVID, yes, but people are dying from other diseases and other, you know, different kinds of diseases that are not, you know, have been neglected, including the mental situation. And, and I think this is where worker managers, people in leadership positions in all occupations should take this upon themselves to make sure that the environment that the different workers are living in are okay. And it's not that employers, you know, or or organizations need to do something themselves. They can make sure that they have referral systems for these people, that they have a list of contacts that these people can, and, and they understand the flexibility needed. So you can't, you know, we're, you know, people aren't disconnecting when they're working from home and you can't expect that. And you need to understand that juggling is okay for a month or two, but it's not, it's not long lasting and you're going to lose your asset and your worker in the long time once they have a nervous breakdown from all the stress and all the um, development. So psychosocial risks have taken on an importance globally. In a sense, it's good because it's always been considered secondary. And it's not, you know, and if you read the literature, you know, soft skills and and compassion and interpersonal skills have always been considered secondary, but they're not secondary. 
um, they're really the basis uh, for people to continue to work, to continue to respect each other and, and to continue to produce and not just be present rather than being absent from a type of job they're doing. Um, so, yeah, so ergonomic risks, definitely. We're seeing, uh, you know, a rise in musculoskeletal diseases, you know, eye issues, you know, lots of problems with people, you know, sitting at their desks all day and not having that, you know, differentiation between a workplace and a home. Yeah, yeah, it's 24-7. Um, but I, I just want to take you back to the, the psychosocial uh, issue for a minute, because there has been so much discussion of this. And um, from what you say, it's the sort of pandemic from the pandemic, potentially. But uh, what, what I'd like to ask you is, um, do you see, is there a gendered component to this too? Definitely. I mean, we've seen historically that most services and most of these occupations are highly dominated by women. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's not that it's intentional that most violence is occurring um, against women in these sectors, but this is how it's happened. Um, because of these, the nature of such um, uh, occupations that are about care and services. And so what's shocking is the amount of violence we've seen um, towards healthcare workers in healthcare settings, but also outside of healthcare workers. So, you know, people have been attacked uh, walking home um, because, you know, they didn't get the treatment they needed for the patients or for family members or um, they weren't able to see members. And this is not speaking about people working in supermarkets and in different grocery stores where people, you know, were looking for different uh, uh, supply um, of different essentials and could not find them. Or others, you know, other healthcare workers and even other workers that have asked people to respect certain measures and please, you know, respect the distance, please put on your mask. And they've been met with a lot of violence um, and sometimes physical violence. And there's been a couple of cases of even um, murder um, in, in different situations in some countries. So it's taken an extreme because people People are under an extreme amount of stress. Uh, they're fighting for their lives or the lives of their loved ones. And, uh, you know, everyone who's at the front line are those facing this uh, uh, violence and then the psychosocial violence that comes with it, of course. Well, we're coming to the end of our time, really. So let, let, me, um, let me ask you to make a little uh, look into the future. How do you think workplaces 10 years from now will be different? from what we saw pre-COVID? I think you can't not learn from such a catastrophe. This is a global crisis that, you know, from what we understand has not happened in this scale for the past 100 years. We're going to learn because policies have already changed. Um, regulations have changed. Um, trainings on different issues have changed. So it's now institutionalized. The way we deal with problems like this, the way we go to work uh, and what we do will never be the same again in many aspects. Uh, we're going to learn, we're going to grow, we're going to prioritize health, we're going to prioritize safety, and we're going to understand that occupational health and public health are overlapping. And what happens and what you do and how you prevent something in the workplace will have consequences on the community and the other way around. So there's there are no more lines, there are less lines um, in the world today. Um, this is not speaking of technology, not speaking of the virtual world um, we continue to live in. But we've been hit hard and we've been hit hard where it hurts. And the world of work was already transforming. And now it will continue to transform, hopefully, 
in an even more informed way. And uh, as we apply the new institutional and um, legal uh, and enforcement measures that are already in place. So this is how long-term change happens. It's by integrating it into your bread and butter at the national level, by realizing it. That it so it's not just a memory, but it becomes part of your law, part of your implementation plan, and part of your management system at the level of every enterprise. I guess that also means there's going to be quite a bit of work to do um, to uh, expand and update uh, international labour standards and guidance um, to take these lessons learned in, into account, yeah? Definitely, definitely. So the ILO uh, is a bit behind in the sense that we have never had um, a standard that uh, managing risks and biological hazards, and that's now um, being discussed to possibly be placed on the agenda for future discussions upon the request of governments and constituents and social partners. So um, we still have a long way to go to develop um, new standards, amend the ones we have and improve in the way we manage and provide, you know, long-term sustainable protections and preventative measures more. Yeah, and hopefully that will be some kind of positive legacy to come out of all the suffering and the horrible things that have happened in, in the last year or so. That's the only way to look forward, to at least learn and learn properly, um, to be ready and to prevent um, catastrophes such as this one in any way we can. Yeah, anticipate, prepare and respond, as you say in the report. Manel, thank you so much for your time and your expertise uh, on this very important subject. Uh, that was Manal Azi, Senior Specialist in Occupational Safety and Health at the ILO. I'm Sophie Fisher. I hope you will join us again soon for another edition of the ILO Future of Work podcast. Goodbye.